Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, our podcast is in honor of Veterans Day, which is on November 11th, and the topic is military mental health. What is the current state of affairs for our active duty, our veterans, our National Guard members, and also their family, and what can be done to serve them better? And to discuss this, I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Yuval Nuria, who's professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and is the director of the PTSD Research and Treatment Program at Columbia and at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Welcome, Yuval. Thank you. So to begin with, military mental health is a really important thing because obviously this is the population or members of our population who are really charged with protecting us. And we have a volunteer army. Uh, People serve for varying periods of time. When they retire from active duty, they become veterans and supposedly have care provided to them for their health care needs. We also have people who are serving within the National Guard as a supplementary force. So it's a large number of people that are very important to our society. And the question is, is how well are we taking care of them? And even though I'm not actively involved in this area of clinical care research, uh, it doesn't take somebody who's an expert to know that there's a lot of problems, particularly in the area of mental health and substance abuse. And we see this in terms of the rates that are reported on suicide, on PTSD, substance use complicating their mental distress. It's apparent both in active service as well as veterans. So Yuval, what is your understanding of why this is the case, and is it something that can be done, or or is it that we just don't know enough about it and the answers to yet? So I think we know quite a bit. We don't have a definitive answer about, for example, you know, brain mechanisms that underlying uh, military-related psychic injuries, but we know quite a bit about the needs of veterans and their family members. For many of them, serving the military is really a life-changing event. They are drafted or volunteered at a younger age. They come back to society and many times unprepared for the challenges. You know, we have a moral duty to understand them better, assess their needs, and to treat their needs in a more professional and scientific way. Now, these are people that are not just working for a living. They're really uh, working in a way that puts them at extreme situations that are very, very stressful, unpredictable, and, and often you know, physically and mentally traumatic. So it's not like somebody who's going to a job and then moves to another city to take another job. They're going into like another planet, and then they're coming back to live, and the reacclimation is difficult, plus the fact that what they've experienced may have injured or at least changed them profoundly. Right, and I really like how you phrased really the role of stress and trauma in the lives of those veterans. You know, many of them are exposed to multiple and repeated stressors in the military. You know, actually millions of them have been exposed to combat. We still see veterans who, who came back from Korea. We see a lot of Vietnam uh, war veterans, and we see quite a bit of younger generations of veterans who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan war. So really trauma is at the core of the needs of those people. I should say that uh, we're talking to you as somebody who is a doctor 
who has expertise in this area, but you also have personal experience. So, Yuval, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this? Well, myself, I was a veteran uh, at the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. I was a company commander. I was a battalion commander in two of the most you know, difficult wars in the history of Israel. On my performance in the Yom Kippur 1973 war, I received the, uh, the Medal of Valor, which is equivalent to the Congressional Medal of Honor in the U.S. So I have intimate experience and hopefully some understanding and empathy to the needs of my fellow veterans wherever they are. And my experience, traumatic as it was, really uh, inspired me to develop a research career at the area of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm studying post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, among soldiers, among prisoners of wars, among 9-11 victims, and recently uh, using kind of innovative neuroimaging in order to understand better what are the uh, deficits uh, that should be addressed uh, when we provide treatment to uh, people with PTSD. So I think that gets at what I think is kind of at the center of why this problem hasn't been addressed more effectively in terms of research to understand the brain mechanisms underlying psychological trauma and why there aren't better modes of prevention and, and treatment, which is you can't see these injuries So the military's done a tremendous job in terms of medical and surgical trauma, where people now who would have died in previous wars are surviving because of the the great field hospitals, transportation, and the life-saving sort of medical support system. But when it comes to mental health, we've utterly kind of lagged behind in any kind of progress. And it seems to me that there's this deep-seated ambivalence or skepticism about whether these are real injuries. Right. I mean, this is really at the heart of the matter. And I think it's very much associated with uh, the issue of stigma, shame, and also guilt. I mean, veterans are uh, very sensitive to the question whether they performed honorably uh, or courageously uh, in the battlefield. And many of them are concerned that PTSD or other trauma-related psychological problems may be perceived as weakness. I must say that this is not the case. I know personally people who were great warriors on the battlefield that coming back from the war pretty shattered and they needed treatment and they received treatment and they were able to uh, proceed with very, very functional lives. There is nothing to be ashamed of, really. Yet things have still lagged behind in terms of research to really better understand how the brain and the mind can be affected by the military experience and combat experience and providing methods to reduce or alleviate those harms. So given the current state of knowledge and the kind of uh, mental health services that are provided both to the military active, but also particularly to the veterans, because we see them, that's when we see them after they've uh, been discharged from the army or military. What are the unmet needs that are just going lacking at the present time? So I think basically uh, there are a couple of uh, unmet needs. First of all, only about half of the veterans are engaged in any way with Veterans Administration in order to receive care, legitimate care that they are qualified from the federal government, which leaving about half of the population of veterans that are not receiving adequate care. 
Moreover, family members are hardly seen as potential clients and, and are parts of the veterans' social fabric that may be perceived as kind of, you know, candidates for treatment themselves. So what we have, we have large amount of veterans that are uh, left out there without good treatment. But more than this, our current treatments are helpful for not more than about half of the people with PTSD. So even if a veteran or a civilian with PTSD is getting good treatment... Or uh, the best we have available, right. it may not be good chance, enough, though. You know, to recover from PTSD or PTSD comorbid with depression is not more than a 50% chance. So what do we do about that? And I think this is why understanding really the brain mechanisms that underlying those disorders is really key to uh, developing better, more specific, and more effective, really, uh, therapeutic tools in order to take care of those veterans. So I'm going to pick up on that in a minute, but before doing so, I just want to go back to what you were saying about how so many veterans are sort of left out and fall through the cracks or don't get the available treatment, even though it may be limited, but nevertheless is at least something. You're in the military, whatever branch of service, mm -hmm. and you serve, you receive an honorable discharge, you become a veteran. There's no handoff that takes place. There's no kind of discharge evaluation of you're as good as new, you have some residual effects, you need this. There's no handoff to the VA. Vets are left to their own devices to seek out care mm -hmm. if they think they need it and they can find a way to apply or, uh, to get it. And then there's the issue of, okay, if they do seek care, how accessible is it and what is the quality of that mm -hmm. care? How comprehensive is it? Does it extend to their families if they have families, because obviously the families are affected by this also. Right. This seems to me to be a sequence and a, a all part of this process, which somehow is not serving the military and when they're discharged, you know, them as veterans well. Is this consistent with what you perceive in your understanding? <clears throat> Certainly. Um, we have established here at Columbia Psychiatry and the New York State Psychiatric Institute the first of its kind treatment center for veterans and their family members. So we see a lot of veterans and we see a lot of family members. And what we hear from those who choose to come to our center is that they are many times really tired and frustrated because of their experience in the veterans administration system. While some, you know, centers and hospitals are really providing excellent care, and many, many of those places don't. So it really depends on geographic location or just luck as a question whether a veteran or his or her family members will get good care. So I think improvement, um, you know, medical and psychiatric care to veterans is really key to provide continuity uh, of care between the military itself and the kind of the post-military uh, era for those veterans, and they don't experience that. So really what I think is needed is first improving uh, VA services, but second, allow places like ours really to flourish and to provide alternative for you know, psychiatric and psychological care that will not compete with the VA, but actually complement 
some of the VA services that the quality is really varied. So what we're doing is we're not competing or even we're augmenting what proved to be inadequate. Let me just try and explain for the uh, listeners kind of how you got to this point and uh, trying to establish this center to offer treatments to vets who otherwise weren't receiving what they needed. After being in Israel and serving in the military, pursuing your uh, research activities there, you were recruited here after the 9-11 disaster. Right. And that was with the specific purpose of focusing on the traumatic effects of that catastrophe and how it was affecting the civilian population. In doing that, you couldn't help but notice the problem with the vets that were coming back. I mean, there were the vets from the Korean Vietnam War, but there were the vets from the Middle Eastern conflicts that were coming back and not getting the help they can. And so because of the deficiencies that exist in the VA system and uh, uh, other sources of care, individual organizations such as ours have had to mandate or enable you to come forward to establish a program to meet these unmet needs. But that's not necessarily what you came here for. It's not necessarily what the job of the Columbia's medical school and the state institute, but it's something that we can't ignore when we see this unmet need happening. Not only that we can't ignore, I, I think that we don't want to ignore, frankly. Those vets are uh, so, so loyal, you know, to our society and are part and parcel of this society. And, and frankly, the research that... Um, uh, we are doing at my lab is beneficial to them many times, either directly or indirectly. So having them coming to seek care here, in, in addition to participate in research uh, protocols, I think it's a great resource uh, for them and make our scientific inquiry much more interesting and frankly uh, promising. Tell us a little bit about the scope of the research that you're doing, the services that are offered. And, and also there's one project I know that you're doing that's getting a lot of attention now called the Man of War Project, which is using uh, uh, equine therapy as a mode of treatment. So in addition to basic science and preclinical science and also some clinical programs that we run as part of our usual scientific agenda, we were lucky enough to establish a program for veterans that is testing for the first time the efficacy of equine-assisted therapy for veterans. And together with my partner, uh, Dr. Prudence Fisher, and thanks to really gifts that, that came from a very generous donor, uh, Mr. Earl Mack, we were able, for the first time actually, to study this issue, to find out what other people are doing across the country to uh, realize that there is no standardized uh, treatment uh, ever that was developed for veterans uh, with PTSD using horses. And then we put together kind of a committee of experts that developed a treatment protocol and tested it first in a pilot manner and then in a full-scale uh, open trial in, uh, combined with brain imaging before and after treatment. Can you describe the actual uh, design? Because I think that the first thing you did when, when you heard about this is, well, there's a lot of pet therapies. What's the rationale for horses? And then after listening to that, how do you rigorously test it? Mm -hmm. And what is the actual study design that you employed? No, absolutely. First of all, let, let me try to address the question, why horses, right? Uh, 
Some people find using horses to be particularly peculiar or, or funny. Horses are fantastic animals that, in addition to dogs, really um, developed close relationship with human beings throughout civilization. And by the way, sacrificed a lot for this relationship. I mean, horses participated in many, many wars. They treated sometimes very badly. But what we found very interesting is that horses that are graduating racing don't have second career, really. They are becoming uh, kind of unnecessary to society. These are thoroughbred horses. Especially. So our idea was to take those horses to find those who are particularly suited, you know, being in therapy with veterans with PTSD. Because horses, like veterans with PTSD, are many times fearful, hypervigilant. They share a lot of kind of qualities that make the bonding with them really a perfect opportunity to learn about PTSD and its symptoms by the veterans. And then we put together a group-based therapy in which, you know, small group of four or five veterans are meeting for eight weeks for a very structured, you know, treatment program where they are uh, exposed to horses, grooming horses, leading horses, doing all sorts of exercises with horses. They don't talk about trauma. So rather than usual treatment of trauma, they don't talk about trauma, but they kind of feed it by the horses and being able to read the horse's fear and how horses really mirror what they feel in a way that is potentially therapeutic. And we have encouraging findings so far that are going to be published soon. And I'm particularly hopeful about the brain imaging component. We have run multimodal MRI imaging before and after treatment, and we're going to examine whether quantified brain changes over time, whether those brain changes are correlated with reduction in symptoms and whether they predict long-term clinical changes over time. I know that as a resident of New York State and a member of the faculty and uh, also a research scientist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute that we have a special interest in our home state population, which has their share of veterans in need of help. What's, What's the situation there? Across the state of New York, there are hundreds of thousands of veterans, about 700,000 veterans from different wars. If you assume that only, let's say, 20% of them will have psychological problems, PTSD, depression, substance abuse, you are already talking about many, many, many potential veterans and their family members that need care. And I would say need evidence-based care. So we, we are hopeful, really, to enlarge our program to get sufficient funding and to make our program really sustainable that will, as I said, not competing with VA, but complementing, augmenting VA services in order to, you know, give back to this uh, uh, population what they really hope for, which is decent, you know, scientifically-based care. When you offer this care in the context of the research, mm-hmm. you don't charge the veterans. Right. It's, it's completely so, free. So how, how, do, how is, is your program supported? So, so far, we are supported mainly by foundations. We are funded for the third year by the Bob Woodrow Foundation. And they believe in us. They support us. Uh, we were initially funded by a New York Presbyterian Hospital. We are very grateful to all of them. 
But as I said before, we are really looking for a more sustainable financial mechanism in order to ensure, you know, the operation of our center for many, many years. So basically, you have to basically, you know, uh, seek funding from various sources. There's no revenue stream and there's no recurrent uh, source of funding for this. And basically, I do believe that mental health care for veterans should be free. I think that's, for me at least, it's kind of a moral commitment. I think, you know, as a country, we are sending those kids to all sorts of dangerous places. When they come back, they deserve free and, and high-quality care. Well, if anybody who's listening to this uh, has an interest uh, in providing support, you know, they can do so by uh, contacting Dr. Anaria and uh, his uh, uh, URL to his website will be posted. We talk about the 20% or the 30% of uh, people that are in military service that uh, may have some visible or diagnosable conditions but I've heard and uh, I, I tend to believe that everyone who goes into a military, particularly a combat experience, comes back changed from it, even if it doesn't rise to the level of syndromal psychopathology. You know, my father served in, the, in World War II in the Pacific. He never talked about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would see photos that were brought back and uh, hear from other people about the kind of experience they went in the Guadalcanal and the Pacific Islands, but he never, ever talked about it. And I suspect that's what uh, a lot of uh, soldiers did, is that they simply, you know, gritted their teeth and bore it, and it was only the extreme cases that came to medical attention if there was any available. I think, you know, as compared to previous generations, and my parents were also serving the military, the current generations are well prepared to talk about their experiences. And that's, that's, I think, kind of a cultural shift over time. They don't share, um, you know, the ideas that they uh, need to remain silent about traumatic experiences. All the more reason to make some treatment available to people when they're you know, more able to be forthcoming as opposed to have to you know, really try and pry it out of individuals or get them to come forward. I can't think of a better way to celebrate and commemorate Veterans Day than having a discussion about this with you, Yuval. So thank you to Dr. Yuval Nuria. He's the director of the PTSD Research and Treatment Program at Columbia University and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University for Shrink Speak. Mm-hmm.